The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the web. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity, From Victim to Victor, and The Complete Idiot's Guide to Recovering from Identity Theft. She's testified many times in Congress and the California Legislature on privacy and identity theft issues. And you may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, ABC, O'Reilly Factor, and many other shows, including her own 90-minute PBS television special, Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash Privacy Piracy. Hey, Mari, what's our show about today? Well, Lloyd, our show today is about cyber law, and we have a super lawyer to talk about cyber law. Let me tell you a little bit about Eric Sinrod, who's a partner in the San Francisco office of Dwayne Morris, LLP. He's been highlighted by an outside publication as the leading IP attorney in the land, and he's been selected by his peers as one of the best lawyers in America in the area of cyber law. That's why we got him on here. Eric is considered a thought leader on electronic discovery issues, which is really a huge issue in the legal arena. Eric is also one of the hosts of Tech Law 10, which is a 10-minute audio podcast update on technology law issues. And he's been profiled in myriad publications, but he's also an adjunct professor of law, and he's published many law review articles and journals. He's a a frequent speaker, and I I could go on and on, but you might want to look at his videos discussing the intersection of law and technology, and those have been featured on YouTube and Google Video. So you can go to www.dwaynemorris.com, and then you can find his name, that's Eric Sinrod. And also at our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy, you'll see his picture, his bio, we link to his URL, and and to his blog and to his videos so just take a look at that but let's get started thank you eric for joining us all the way from northern california my pleasure to be here thank you mari so tell me something how is it that you originally got into privacy issues and and why did you do that before i answer that question i just want to point out i also write a weekly cyber law blog for finelaw.com and if people are interested in getting a free email once a week with a link to that blog just send me an email E.J. Sinrod, E-J-S-I-N-R-O-D at DwayneMorris.com, D-U-A-N-E-M-O-R-R-I-S.com, and simply put subscribe in the subject line. Well, that's wonderful. I know you do a great blog. So how did I get into privacy issues? Well, as most things in life, it was somewhat accidental. I was an associate at a law firm, and I was handed, handed a pro bono case to take up, and it was a very interesting case under the Freedom of Information Act. And I was then in heated litigation with the federal government, um, principally the uh, Immigration Service and the State Department, in terms of their intransigence uh, as respects to providing information timely under the statute. Uh, I obtained some nationwide relief 
uh, forcing the government to respond to FOIA requests uh, within 10 days, which they were not doing. And then that gained some notoriety, and I was contacted with respect to a case that was going up to the United States Supreme Court. And that particular case dealt with Haitian boat people. Uh, you might recall back in the early 1990s, uh, people in Haiti were getting in rickety boats and trying to you know, go across the water and you know, make their way to Florida. Right. Some of them perished along the way, and then others were apprehended and immediately put in deportation proceedings and oftentimes sent back to Haiti. And during their deportation proceedings, these people would try to make the argument that they were entitled to political asylum in our country because they had a well-founded fear of persecution upon return to their home country, which is the standard. Right. So there were some Freedom of Information Act requests that were served on the government because the government reported that it had gone down to Haiti and interviewed some of the people that had been sent back, and they all said, hey, you know what, life is wonderful here. We're so glad we were sent back. So, you know, yeah. no, no problem here. The immigration judges in Florida stopped believing some of the uh, applicants who said they were afraid of going home because there they they were these press reports that others had preceded them went home and were just fine. So Freedom Information Act requests were made to obtain the names of the people who had been sent back and, the, and to obtain the records of the interview notes of the people who had been interviewed who essentially supposedly said they were you know, doing fine on return. Um, there's a privacy question. There's Exemption 6 to the Freedom of Information Act where the government can refuse to give you information if it might cause a clearly unwarranted invasion of somebody's personal privacy. Right. And the government said, we're not going to give you these records because it could invade the privacy of these people. Uh-huh. Um, and what you weigh against that is, well, what's the public interest in the information? Right. And we argue to the Supreme Court, there's a great public interest in this information because we need to find out if it's true that people are doing okay upon return, because if it's not true, immigration judges in Florida need to know about it, so they're not applying the wrong standard to people still trying to stay here. And what was interesting was they were arguing that there could be a clearly unwarranted invasion of personal privacy, because if we interview these people, something bad could happen to them. Well, if life was really great for them back in <laughs> Haiti, why would anything bad happen to them? Right. So it was kind of tautological. Um, that's how I got involved in the privacy issues way back in the early 1990s. Well, I got to talk to you about uh, this poor gentleman who's a victim of criminal identity theft who who um, had a job for seven years, and then TSA came in. He had a job at LAX, you know, at the airport for seven years, and then TSA came in and said, you have to do a background check. And he told them, you know, I was a victim of criminal identity theft. And um, so they told him that um, he didn't pass the background check and that he was going to have to be fired by this company. So he asked for the background check, which he's entitled to, right? Hasn't gotten it. It's been months. He did a Freedom of Information Act request, and it's still been more months. And um, so I got to talk to you about him. It's a... these are not his criminal, vi- I mean, we know that there's criminal violations on his background check that don't belong to him. So uh, it's been horrible, and he's he's been turned down for literally hundreds and hundreds of jobs now, and they won't give him the information. And so uh, i got to talk to you. I don't know. If- <laughs> and, and by the way, to continue my thought, after that Supreme Court case, this was back in the 1990s, it, it occurred to me that potentially the Internet would become a viable commercial medium, which obviously it has and it's exploded. 
and we're now living our lives online that way. Um, so I started specializing in Internet privacy-type issues. It was ironic because others at my firm were saying at the time, no, you need to focus on Y2K. Y2K is going to be the big <laughs> oh, thing. Goodness. You know, privacy is just this academic ivory tower issue. And I said, <laughs> no, not true. In fact, you're going to see that there's going to come a day where good privacy is going to be good business and bad privacy is going to mean companies going out of business. Exactly. So that leads us to talking about your work with companies with respect to privacy. So, so tell us about what what are you doing with companies? And we have a lot of companies that that drive by. We have a right here on the campus at the University of California Irvine. We have a very big the Paul Mirage Business School. So I think it's really important, like you said, to that good privacy is good business. So let's talk a little bit about that with respect to privacy policies. Sure. Well, we try to deal with companies. You know, on the front end, so they set up good privacy policies. Um, and, you know, in the beginning, uh, 10 or more years ago, you know, companies were first, you know, putting on their websites, you know, privacy policies. And, you know, the idea would be from some of these companies, well, we can just cut and paste uh, the privacy policy of, you know, some other uh, company. Let's say Amazon has a fairly, you know, lengthy privacy policy. Let's just cut and paste it. And I explained to these companies, and I've worked with them, that there is no one-size-fits-all. You know, it really depends on your own business and what you intend to do. And the most important thing is, you know, don't promise a level of privacy that you're not going to fulfill. You, know, you don't get any award for having a platinum privacy policy that you fail. And right. frankly, the easiest way to get in the crosshairs of the FTC and state attorneys generals and class action plaintiff attorneys is to promise a great level of privacy that you don't deliver. So we first talk about what you're going to do, you know, with personal, personally identifiable information, uh, how you're going to protect it, and then how you uh, achieve transparency so your customers are aware of it and you get their buy-in. Yes. And, and when you are looking at, it depends on what kind of company it is. If it's a financial industry, they're going to have one kind of privacy policy and maybe you know, if they have something for children, then they're going to have to worry about another kind of privacy policy. So you're right. You can't just cut and paste. You have to look at what is your, what are your goals? Who are your customers, right? All those things really matter. Well, that's correct. I mean, for example, some people are surprised to find out there isn't just one federal law that globally deals with internet privacy issues. We have sort of a sector approach here for financial institutions. We have the Graham-Leach-Bliley Act or the Financial Modernization Act which imposes certain uh, privacy requirements on financial institutions. We have HIPAA in the healthcare area. We even have the Bork Video Act. Are you familiar with that one? Tell me about that one. Tell my audience about well, that. Well, you might remember, I think this was back in the 1980s, but Justice Robert Bork was being considered for the United States Supreme Court. He'd been a federal appellate uh, judge. And during his nomination or uh, you know, confirmation proceedings, uh, some journalists did some snooping, and they found the records of the type of videos that he had rented from the video store, and some of them were somewhat adult-oriented, shall we say. Yeah. And that did not help his chances, and he ultimately did not become a Supreme Court justice. So Congress then passed a law that afforded some level of privacy with respect to the videos that you rent. This is how the law is made. Yes. And then, of course, we've got the Fair Credit Reporting Act, which also is, you know, has other privacy implications as well as to how your financial information can, um, you know, be used by credit bureaus and how it has to be corrected. So we've got that. And uh, aren't there some library privacy laws as well? 
I mean, there's just, it just like you say, there's just a, a, a potpourri of different kinds of privacy laws as opposed to what they have and where they have uh, in, in like the European Union or in Australia or somewhere else where they've got a whole privacy kind of like uh, overview of privacy. We, we have it all over the place, don't we? Yeah, it is sort of a tapestry. And you, know, you mentioned Europe and you know, Europe um, protects privacy at a much greater level than we do here in the United States. We're more interested in freedom of speech. You know, Americans like to have their right to, to talk at you, whereas Europe, in Europe, privacy is of, of paramount importance. And that, that really comes out of the wake of the Holocaust and World War II and what was done to people in terms of their assets and their, their information. Yes. Uh, and so they want to have greater protection there, right. uh, which, which raises issues when we have you know, data flow, for example, between the United States and Europe. Yes, and companies that are used to um, having opt-out versus opt-in. And why don't we talk a little bit about that so that my audience understands that? Sure. Well, um, in Europe, for example, uh, this is very simplistic. Uh, It's much more complicated. But in Europe, essentially, there has to be disclosure in terms of, you know, what will be done with obtained personally identifiable information, and not only disclosure, but before a company can take and use that information as it says it will, it needs affirmative opt-in by the customer. Yeah, prior consent, yes. The customer clicks and says, yes, you may do that, or no, you may not. Uh, Whereas in the United States, we're generally more opt-out. You know, this is what we will do with your information unless you tell us no. Right. Um, As opposed to requiring a yes. Yes. Now, um, Eric is a Eric Sinrod is a partner in the San Francisco office of Dwayne Morris, and we're talking to him. He is a cyber lawyer and a guru on privacy. You know, we have everybody who, you know, all sorts of people work, right? Hopefully, there's a lot of people out of work right now, but a lot of people work, and the workplace is a place where most people think that they have some privacy. Now, what's going on with respect to the reasonable expectation of privacy in the workplace? What, what do you think? Well, I think people should assume they don't have very much privacy at all. In uh, many workplaces, uh, you will sign, uh, you know, uh, an employee handbook, if you will, or, you know, policies, uh, you know, a business equipment policy or computer use policy or, or various policies. But essentially, when the employee signs up, normally the employer says in writing, by the way, when you're here, you know, you should not expect privacy. When you're on our computer system, when you're using our email service, when you're using the telephone, um, we have the right to monitor you, um, and we will. And so, you know, be careful. Now, some, and, and there's also rules under the Electronic Communications Privacy Act, which essentially says the same thing. The one thing employers cannot do under that statute is to intercept emails in transit, but who cares? I mean, they, they're in transit for a nanosecond, and then they're stored, and they can be reviewed. So, you know, employees should be educated that, you know, what they do at work is for review by the employers, and they should govern themselves accordingly. Now, that's not to say that every single, you know, mouse click or keystroke or audible word on a telephone is actually going to be monitored by an employer. Uh, the employers don't have the resources to do that. There's not one person available to monitor every employee. Uh, that would be impossible, especially in this economy. But when the employer knows or has reason to believe there's something fishy going on with an employee, that's when they'll start 
paying attention, and they sort of have given themselves permission to do so, and they've asked for the employee's consent. It gets a little more complicated when somebody's at work and maybe accessing their Gmail account or, you know, going through some sort of, you know, private third-party service, uh, and there have been, you know, differing results in, in the cases. There was one situation where a woman employee was using her work supply laptop to communicate on Gmail to her attorney about some employment issues she was having in her workplace. Right. And ultimately, the court held that that was protected. The employer did not have a right to it, because she was, but mainly because she was communicating with her attorney, and the communication said attorney-client privilege. If she had been communicating with somebody else, we're not quite sure. Right. So, so we don't we don't know. Even though I tell my clients never write to me ever on on your workplace email, you know, please, right. if anything, you know, go on your personal cell phone and send me an email from your Gmail account, your Hotmail account, or whatever it is. But that's really important to know because I've I've seen some horrible things happen where people do write things to their friends or even to their attorneys. I mean, the fact is, is somebody's already seen it. Even though they, it is an invasion of privacy, they've already seen the communication between the attorney and the client if, if, if you're sending it from your, your workplace email. So it's not a good idea ever to do that. What about if the, um, if the phone that they give you to use, let's say they give you an iPhone, um, what about that? If you use your iPhone for work, but you also use it when you're away from work, what about, is there any reasonable expectation of privacy there? Yeah, I mean, we're starting to get out on the fringes. And, uh, you know, I've helped develop, you know, some policies for some employers in these areas. And, you know, what about social media, too? Exactly. Um, and so, you know, it's important, you know, for employers, in some ways from a morale standpoint, not to make their employees feel too restricted because then it's just not a good place to work and they're going to be demotivated. So, you know, if you're provided with a work supplied, you know, handheld device, um, and somebody's, you know, off hours at home, you know, using their Gmail or Facebook, you really want to say no to that, um, you know, perhaps not, and you might have policies that allow for employees to use the, those devices for personal reasons, but you can still have in your policies, by the way, if you're going to be talking about work and, you know, your place of employment, you know, you need to sort of uphold our image and, you know, comport yourself accordingly. Yeah, and I think this is a huge issue for employers right now because they they are concerned about what goes out on social networking and they, you know, a lot of companies are even setting up their own social networks sure. within companies. What do you think about that? Well, that's right. I mean, that's quite true. Many companies now have their own Facebook page and they've learned that social initially you know, companies were very reluctant about social networking because they just thought it was something they couldn't control and it was new and for the younger generation. But they're realizing that it's a terrific platform to partner with other companies, to launch you know, new advertising campaigns essentially for free, to, to build your own fan base. But when they do that, they might only have certain authorized employees who can actually be on the company's Facebook page. They will have protocols and instructions on you know, what you can and cannot do because that's the company's Facebook page. It's not like somebody going home to their own personal Facebook page. Right. And I, and I just want to add, um, you know, there are some valid reasons, of course, why employers, you know, want to be on top of all of this. You know, for example, they don't want employees at work spending all of their time shopping at, at Amazon.com. Right. They don't want them defaming and harassing other people. They, don't, they want to make sure that their employees are not sending their intellectual property out the door through email and otherwise. So there mm -hmm. are valid reasons here. Absolutely. 
Let's talk a little bit about the high-tech gadgets when we're talking about surveillance, video surveillance and audio surveillance. What about that? What about the privacy concerns there? We're, we're hearing about companies that have video surveillance all over the place. Well, that's true. And I was actually thinking of it from another angle. You know, what about, you know, the handheld devices in, in the hands of the employees? Right. You know, I mean, now, you know, anything can be filmed in a, in a heartbeat and put up on the Internet. So, you know, you have a task, you know, you have an army of employees with their own, you know, camera phones. And, you know, they could take pictures of another employee, you know, picking their nose or going to the bathroom or doing something embarrassing. And, and then two seconds later, it's on YouTube. Or, or they can take photos and, and videos of, you know, the, the trade secret, you know, operations of a company and send them across the street to their competitor. Right. Um, so because of those concerns, maybe that's a greater reason why you then have surveillance, you know, by the companies. And, and frankly, it's amazing to me, we don't see more problems in this area. You know, so, how, how do companies plausibly protect their trade secrets when everything is so viewable and retrievable now? Exactly. So, you know, what kind of policies, you know, for our business people that drive by in our business school, what kind of policies do you suggest with regard to video surveillance? With respect to video surveillance? Mm-hmm. Um, well, I mean, I think uh, it's interesting. I mean, not every company will engage in video surveillance. Um, only companies, you know, if they're really truly concerned about uh, theft uh, of various types. I mean, you'll, you'll know, for example, in department stores, you know, you have to see those like great bubbles at the top of ceilings, and there are actually cameras in there filming uh, employees and, and customers, uh, perhaps in you know, highly uh, secure and sensitive areas. Um, you know, at the real you know, nerve center of a company, you might have video surveillance to make sure nothing's being absconded with. You might not have video surveillance you know, everywhere within a company. Uh, you know, for example, if people work for Coca-Cola, you know, they're obviously safeguarding the secret formula that's been protected for 86 years. And I've now just learned it's going to be now stored at the Coca-Cola Museum, but not, not for public viewing, but it'll just be there. Yeah. But, you know, there, there's certain, there's certain um, areas uh, of, a, of a place of employment that just will be off limits to certain people and need to be closely monitored. And again, the more employers can make that clear uh, in their in manuals that they have their employees sign and educate employees, then the employees know that they're not surprised and they've agreed to it. Right. And, and I think that's the key is just let them know. I know here at the station at UCI, yeah. we have video monitoring sure. because we have expensive equipment. There's people here. We, we air 24-7. And there have been incidences where people would come in and maybe sneak in a friend in the middle of the night and they drink. So, you know, this the university has, you know, an obligation to protect people and to protect the the uh, the equipment. So there is video surveillance, but everybody knows it. So if you're stupid enough to do something with <laughs> with that video surveillance on you, I mean, it, it, it's in plain view. So I think it's uh, and and everybody knows it. I think that's one of the things is just know it. You wouldn't want it in the bathroom. Well, exactly. Certain areas have to be sacrosanct. You cannot film people changing clothes, going to the bathroom. You know. Right. Right. Let's let's kind of switch gears a little bit and talk about this the concerns with the cloud. You know, people don't realize that they are in the cloud. When they're on Gmail, they're in the cloud. When they're on Facebook, they're in the cloud. When they're backing up on the cloud. So let's talk about the privacy concerns with regard to that. Sure. Well, I mean, what, you know, what is the cloud? The cloud is, you know, where, you know, information is hosted off-site, right? So, you know, you refer to, you know, if you're on Gmail, 
you're in the cloud. Right. I mean, the data that surrounds your Gmail account or underpins your Gmail account is not there really on your computer. It's, it's somewhere else on a server, you know, elsewhere. And what I, what I think about, you know, there's been sort of a, a movement. There was a movement of companies like, let's just put everything in the cloud. We don't have to store the data. We don't have to deal with it. Let's hire, you know, third parties to do this for us. But there's some real issues there. First of all, you know, hosting data is getting cheaper and cheaper and cheaper, so companies might realistically think about not sending it off-site. But you know, what if that information, that data you have, you know, contains the personally identifiable information of your customers, you know, their birth dates, their addresses? Their social, yeah, their social, social security. Numbers, yeah. Maybe their medical information, their financial information, and you're sending it off to a third-party provider, then what? Um, you know, plainly, you need to have... If you do that, and you might want to think about it, you know, what if it's your trade secret information, your own intellectual property? Uh, probably you want to keep that in-house, but if you're sending stuff out, you need to have very strong contractual protections vis-a-vis the cloud provider. You probably need to get affirmative consent from people who are affected by you doing this. Um, it, it can be complicated. And, and then what happens when if the cloud provider, you know, mistakenly... Uh, reveals private information. Yeah, or they have a security breach. Somebody just goes in and, right. and takes it, it hacks it. Right. So it, it can it can raise a, a number of thorny issues. Now, do you recommend that people encrypt in the sensitive data before they, they before they back it up in the cloud or before they store it in the cloud? Yeah, I mean, when you can you know, afford yourself of certain levels of protection for sensitive data, they, they should be employed. Yeah, because that's what I do. I mean, I, I encrypt it before I back it up. So I know... Right that, okay, it's backed up there, and I know where I can get it, and I know how to get it. But it does. It does scare me. It scares me tremendously. Right. So what about this? Do, do you think in, in this day and age, because we have about two more minutes left before oh. we have to end, but, you know, people say, oh, well, privacy is gone. You have no privacy. What do you think about that? Do you think that, that we do have any privacy? Do you think people care at all about privacy? <laughs> you know, privacy is like oxygen. You don't really think about it till you don't have it, and then you can't breathe. I love it. You know, remember the song from the seventies? You know, love is like oxygen. You know, how does it go? Love is like oxygen. Yeah. Oh, you get too much, you get high. Not enough, you're going to die. Right. Um, well, privacy is like that. Um, you don't really pay attention until somebody's running around with your credit card number, buying fifty thousand dollars worth of you know computer equipment supplies. Or they steal your identity and, and they're working under your name or they, they committed right. crimes and you can't get a job. Even worse than a credit card, right? Exactly. So do people care about privacy? I don't think they walk around thinking about it as long as there's not a problem. But when there's a problem, it, it can be huge. Yes. Um, and so it's important. And that's why we have these laws that are coming into effect. That's why you have governmental regulatory authorities you know, stepping up in this area. That's why you have lawsuits uh, dealing with it. That's why we now have, you know, chief, you know, information. Privacy, privacy officers, yeah. Privacy officers at companies. I mean, truly, you know, pri- like I said before, good privacy is good business. Bad privacy is bad business. And if you're a legion of customers who are finding their privacy getting compromised, you're going to shop elsewhere. You're going to go elsewhere. And the same thing goes for attorneys. I find that a lot of attorneys don't even know how to protect privacy. So thank goodness you're out there with your cyber law and all the great things that you're teaching all of us because we really appreciate you, Eric. Why don't you just give your website and then it'll be time for us to go. Sure. Well, my uh, firm website is DwayneMorris.com. My name's Eric Sinrod, S-I-N-R-O-D. As I said before, my email's EJSinrod at DwayneMorris.com. 
You can follow me on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook. Um, if you want to subscribe to my weekly blog, just send me an email and put subscribe in the subject line, and you'll be receiving it by email on Thursdays. Nobody else will see your email address. <laughs> your email address will be... <laughs> you don't closed. sell information, right? <laughs> no, I'm not selling any information. No. Well, thank you, Eric, and keep up the great work, and we'll have you back again. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Ari Frank. Join us every Monday morning here on uh, KUCI at 8 a.m. and listen to Privacy Piracy and write us emails Visit our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy where you can see our upcoming guests and shoot us an email about what's important to you in the information age. Thanks. Stay private. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.